Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 122. I had that psalm stuck in my head since last Sunday. We used it as our call to worship. And uh, so I thought, as we often go through a psalm on these first Sundays of the month, that it would be a good one for us to go through. So if you have a Bible, if you want to stand, if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand and uh, follow along as I read our sermon text, Psalm 122. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It says, A song uh, of ascents of David. And David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was declared for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that, as always, you give it to us as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that by it you reveal to us the way of salvation through faith in Christ, and you show us how you would have us to live. You've given us all things that we need for life and godliness through your word, and we ask once again that you work in us by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for we ask all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, Psalm 122 uh, begins with David's exclamation of gladness that I think some of us can probably sympathize with. In recent days, when his brothers in the, in the faith encouraged him, saying to him, he says, they told him, let us go to the house of the Lord! Exclamation point. Maybe not having been able to go the last few months, I don't know about you, uh, but uh, I will probably never look at this verse in the same way again after these last few months, after churches all around our country, uh, even our own, were prohibited from gathering together and for public worship by our state and local governments in response to this coronavirus pandemic. You know, when we were finally allowed to get together in person last Sunday, I was one happy camper. You know, it's not the same thing staring at a screen and, you know, all I could think of is I'm old enough to remember Mr. Rogers, maybe some of you do too, and he used to once in a while he would hold this little circle thing up and he'd pretend he would see the people watching and he'd say your names and I would always be like, He's going to say Andy, and he almost never did. You know, he doesn't see me. It's kind of how I felt. Like, I was like, I see so-and-so, and I didn't see so-and-so. But I'm glad that we're all back uh, together, even if we're a little bit more spread out than, than normal. And uh, we're, we are glad that we had the technology to do these things and, and stream the service so those who can't be here for various reasons could still participate and be doing so at home. Well, in this psalm, uh, David talks about his gladness at public worship at gathering with his, his comrades in the faith. Uh, and in the psalm, what David does is he extols uh, the beauty and virtues of Jerusalem, which may seem kind of a foreign thing to us in the middle of the psalm in verses 3 through 5. He extols Jerusalem as the place in his day where the Lord had decreed for his people to gather for corporate worship. That took place at the tabernacle or the temple in verses 3 through 4. It's also a place Jerusalem was where righteous judgments were to be found, that's something I think when we look at the news these days, uh, we wish we could have some more of, of that kind of thing, that God's justice and judgment would be made known. And he's telling us here in the psalm 
He's telling us in the rest of the psalm after verses 1 and 2 why he was so glad when he was told, let's go up to the house of the Lord. He gives us briefly a, a number of reasons why that is, that he was so happy to join his fellows at God's house. And then in verses 6 through 9, David exhorts the faithful. Remember, it starts off, his fellows exhorted him, saying, let's go to the house of the Lord. In the last few verses of the psalm, David exhorts the rest of us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in verse 6. In fact, he mentions peace three times in verses 6 through 8. It seems to be the theme of the last part of the verse. Uh, peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, of the place of God's people and God's worship in his day. And, and all those who love her, uh, peace and prosperity being upon them or the repeated refrain and concern in the last part of the psalm. You might even know, you know, the psalm mentions peace three times. And the name Jerusalem, you might already know what it means. What's the last part of that name? Shalom, peace. So peace among God's people is kind of the central focus of the whole psalm. And where else do you get it to have a, a, a chance to, to have peace in the midst of confusion and chaos, if not in public worship of God in his house. Well, maybe you read a psalm like this, maybe you read a lot of the psalms, and you say, I don't know how this applies to me. This was written about a city that we don't live in, a city that's not the same as it was in David's day. The temple is no longer even there. It's been torn down and been gone from from the earth since A.D. 70. And so you might say to yourself, you know, how does this apply to us in the church today? We are not citizens, obviously, of the earthly Jerusalem, uh, nor is the public worship of God any more confined to one location as it was in David's day for the most part at the tabernacle or temple. In John chapter 4, remember the woman tells Jesus, you know, you Jews worship where you are and we worship where we are, paraphrasing. And Jesus said, there's coming a day when God will seek worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, not in a certain location only, but spiritually and in the truth, and that is the case even now. William Plummer, a great commentator on the book of Psalms, rightly notes this. He says, it will weaken the force of this psalm if we forget that Jerusalem was a type of the true church of Christ and also of the heavenly state. In other words, in a lot of the psalms and elsewhere in the scriptures, when you read of Jerusalem, one of the things it should remind you of, and it serves as a type or a pattern of, is the true church of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the church. We often say that Israel in the Old Testament was the Old Testament church, just as we are in the New Testament, the New Testament church of Christ. And so Jerusalem was a type of the church. That means it's a type of us as the gathered church. And it's also a type of heaven. It's a picture in small scale, uh, an analogy of heaven. And so everything that David says of the earthly Jerusalem in his day in this psalm, everything he says about the house of God in his day in this psalm, really, if you think about it, it's as timely and relevant as it's ever been. Because ultimately it speaks both of the church and the public worship of the church on the Lord's day in this life, as well as it speaks of the new Jerusalem, which we looked at at the end of the book of Revelation a number of months ago. Which in some sense, remember that picture in Revelation 21, we're going to read a little bit, of, little bit of it later in the sermon, that picture of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Uh, and, and what is it? It's a place, but it's a people. It's kind of a mixed metaphor of sorts. It's, it's not just the, the place, but it's a people of God, the place where God dwells with his people. 
So we should be as glad at the thought of going to public worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ at the house of the Lord on the Lord's day as David was in his day to go to the tabernacle or the temple. Maybe even more so. We have in some ways greater privileges than even David had in his day. We have the entirety of scripture given to us already. We have the full picture revealed to us in Christ of which they looked at in shadows and types in the Old Testament. And you and I should love, I think this psalm teaches us, that you and I should love the church and diligently seek after her purity and peace and prosperity in all of our prayers and all the things that we do. And we should look forward also to that day, I think this psalm is telling us, when the church, which is the bride of Christ, is revealed in all of her glory in heaven, when our fellowship with and worship of the Lord together will be unbroken, perfect, and perpetual forever. You know, our, our worship, our fellowship in this life is imperfect at best. It's still good. It's still God-honoring. It's still God's will that we have these things in this life. But in heaven, it will all be perfect. All the things that prevent us from worshiping God with all of our hearts uh, will be stripped, stripped away. We won't have the problems that we have with worship once we're in heaven with the Lord on that last day. Well, I'd like with that in mind to look at a few brief exhortations from the psalm to all of us from this psalm of David. And the first lesson I think of this psalm is that we should look forward to public worship with God's people in God's house on the Lord's day. We should look forward to public worship with God's people every Lord's day. That was certainly David's attitude that he models for us here in the psalm. This psalm is written for our benefit. You know, David could have been glad when his companion said to him, you know, let's go to the house of the Lord and not written a single word about it. But David wrote this not just for his own benefit and edification, but for yours and mine as well. And so when David says in verses 1 and 2, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. He's writing that for us. And you get the impression from these verses that you didn't have to tell David twice. His friends didn't have to nag him to come to church. They told him once and he was, he was ready to go. He couldn't wait to get to the house of God fast enough. He was glad to hear the exhortation of his fellow Israelites when they invited him to accompany them to worship in God's house. In fact, the words in verse 2, they might seem strange to us. In fact, they're translated in different, slightly different ways. If you look at a King James or New American Standard, it's hard to tell sometimes with Hebrew, uh, Hebrew writing in the Old Testament if something is past tense or future. Some translate it as our feet are going to be standing, they shall stand. Like We're not there yet, but we're going to be. This one, the ESV puts it as past Our feet have been standing within your gates. When he says that, it seems to paint a picture uh, of him and his brothers anxiously waiting at the door of the house of God. They're in Jerusalem. They're ready to go. They're waiting for the door to open. That's how much they look forward to worship. They're there with bells on. You know, I I can't help but think of, not that I would compare worship of God to entertainment, but you you think of like going to Disneyland or, or to a ball game or something. Sometimes you get there so early The doors aren't even open, and you're standing there not knowing what to do with yourself, and you're kind of looking at your watch, and you, come on, is this door going to open? That's how we should be when it comes to worship on the Lord's day at God's house. So I I asked this morning not to give anybody a guilt trip, but what about you? What about me? Do you count the Lord's day Sunday as the best day of the week? Is there another day that you count better than Sunday? I hope that's not the case. I remember... uh, 
I, I hope that you don't make a habit of reading books by Joel Osteen. One was sort of subtly referenced uh, by Rob. He does not read them either. But he had a book, uh, Your Best Life Now, which I don't recommend. But he also had another book, and I, I did not read it, but the very title alone offended me. And it was Every Day of Friday. I'm like, you're supposed to be a Christian minister, and you want people to be... Thank, thank God it's Sunday. Friday's not the best day of the week. Sunday is. We get to start our week. It feels like the end of the week because of the weekend, but we get to start our week with fellowship and worship of the Lord. Do you look at Sunday as the best day of the week? Do you look forward to public worship with your with your family in Christ every Lord's Day in, in God's house? And one of the ways you can tell this is what does it take to keep you away? In, in, the, in my old days, it didn't take very much at all to keep me away. Maybe that was the case for you as well. Frankly, many of the outward things that most commonly keep people away from the Lord's house on Sundays have been kind of stripped away by the recent events in our nation over the past few months. Many of those things involve various forms of entertainment or amusement, things such as sporting events, movies, dining out, among other things. The various distractions that we have uh, from worship, a lot of them have been taken away. Not that we don't find other things to distract us from worship, but I think that in, in some sense, if you want to look for a silver lining, uh, not that people still aren't breaking the Sabbath and the Fourth Commandment, but uh, it, it's harder to do so, at least outwardly. There's no games to go to and whatnot. Uh, sadly, for many professing Christians in our day, it doesn't seem to take very much at all to keep them from worshiping God with God's people on his day. And that's really nothing new, is it? You know, you often hear me say things like, in our day, as if things have really changed that much. And in a lot of ways, they haven't. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, tells us, in the last 2,000 years, not a lot has really changed because we, as people, really haven't changed. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, And let us consider how to stir one another, or stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, we, we like to talk about the good old days, and there have been good old days, but the first century church, the writer of Hebrews was already saying, as is the habit of some. Some were already neglecting the public worship of God and the fellowship of believers in his day. Now, the reason for that is probably quite different in their case as it is in our case, in our land at least. In his day, it was persecution. Naming the name of Christ, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, worshiping the Lord with God's people, put a target on your back. And many, especially converted Jews, didn't want any part of that. And so they kind of, in a sense, the temptation was to kind of go back to the temple worship, to kind of be an undercover Christian. And the writer of Hebrews tells them, you can't do that, you can't go back. You can't go back to the types and shadows. And so the writer of Hebrews tells them, stir one another up to love and good works. And one of the ways you fail to do that, you can't do that, is if you're neglecting to gather together with God's people. That's, that, that's where it starts. If we don't gather, there's no stirring up of one another to love and good works. There's no encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near if we don't gather. So way back in the first century A.D., it was the habit of some to neglect. It was their habit it was their settled practice or tendency to neglect the gathering of God's people for worship. And the Bible tells us that should not be the case. Brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be the case. 
Now, there are legitimate reasons for some to miss and to neglect, so to speak, the gathering. You know, there are many that physically are unable to gather. That's why we're still having the streaming that we have. There are those who, by illness or infirmity, are incapable. They're unable to meet. That is not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. To neglect implies that you're able to do something and just don't. So those who cannot be here for various reasons should not take uh, discouragement from Hebrews 10. They want to be here. You know, you can tell what kind of person, what kind of believer you are is, you know, when you miss church, do you miss it? Well, there are those who neglect it that don't miss it when they miss it. If you're missing church when you actually miss it, that, 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 that would tell you this isn't really talking about you. This is talking about some other kind of neglect of God's worship. Do you recall Luke's amazing description of the early church in Acts chapter 2? We read it last Sunday for Pentecost Sunday. Chapter 2 is one of those amazing chapters when you read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church in Jerusalem. Uh, And what was the result? Do you remember towards the end of the chapter? What was the result? What happened as a result of God pouring out his spirit on his church there on that first Pentecost, that day of Pentecost? Acts 2.42 tells us the result of that outpouring of the spirit. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the, the they there bad grammar, but the they that he's talking about is these 3,000 souls that were added to the church in one day. Peter preached the sermon on Pentecost Sunday, and 3,000 Jews from all over the world that had gathered for the feast of Pentecost heard the word of the gospel of Christ and were marvelously, miraculously converted to Christ. And what's the first thing they did? What's the first thing Luke tells us? You know, we we have a, a, an odd view of evangelism in our day. You know, we have not condemning them, they're, they're fine things in and of themselves, but we have these great evangelistic crusades and thousands of people sometimes, and we hope that they're sincere, you know, go down the aisles and, and accept Christ. And sometimes you get the feeling like you accept Christ and that's it. You've got your insurance, your fire insurance policy in your back pocket. You go right back to living the way you did. Not in Acts 2. Acts 2, they didn't get their fire insurance policy and go back to their old ways of life. They committed themselves to each other. Read it again, Acts 2.42. They knew Christians. You almost get the feeling nobody even had to tell them to do this. The Spirit of God just led them to it. They devoted themselves to these things. They didn't just kind of add this as a little side thing to their life. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, teaching of the Word of God. The fellowship, they weren't Lone Ranger Christians, they were with each other. The fellowship, the breaking of bread... That's the Lord's Supper and the prayers. It doesn't say, and to prayer, which of course is probably true as well. The prayers implies corporate prayer with God's people. They prayed together. They fellowshiped together. They had the Lord's table together. They heard the teaching of the apostles together. And that was the work of the filling of the Holy Spirit among them. It's because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and upon these people that they devoted themselves to those things. And those things that I just read, fellowship, the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of the bread and prayers, what is that What is that describing? What we in Presbyterian circles call the outward and ordinary means of grace. And that's a, that's a fancy schmancy way of saying how God works. These are the things God uses to build us up in the faith and make us grow in his grace. And they were devoted to those things. And so it shouldn't be a shock to any of us to read the rest of Acts 2 and see 
the church kept growing. And not just in number, but in godliness and concern for one another. They, their lives were transformed by, the, by God's means of grace that they were devoted to by his grace. And it says in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lives were changed, sinners were saved, not by some program, not by some spectacular anything, but by the grace of God in the means of grace in the church. Simple things like the preaching of the word of God, the fellowship of believers. These are the things we should be devoted to as well. We should likewise uh, yearn and pray that we might be too filled with the Holy Spirit and be devoted because of that to the means of grace in public worship. If that were to happen among us, we would more and more see the Lord Jesus at work among us, saving sinners and transforming and changing lives. That's what changes things. If that, if that were the case, if we were to, to do that and by God's grace, see God at work among us that way, changing lives, saving sinners, I don't think a pack of wild horses could keep us from church. We'd, we'd be excited. We'd be glad when they said to us, hey, it's Sunday. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Well, the second, the second exhortation from our psalm this morning that I would like to offer to you is not only should we look forward to worship on the Lord's day in his house, but we should also learn to have a great love for the church, a great love for the church as well. That, that goes hand in hand with the, for, with the former thing. A love for public worship implies it necessitates a love for Christ's church. David, in verses 3 through 5, he kind of extols for us the, the, the greatness, the glories of, of the earthly Jerusalem, but with an eye to the heavenly one, I believe. You know, in verses 1 and 2, he tells us, he exclaims how glad he was about going to church, so to speak. And in verses 3 through 5, he writes, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, it was on a hill, the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, you know, the 12 tribes, the people of Israel, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. What was it about Jerusalem that made David so prone to extol its, its, its greatness, its majesty in this psalm? What, when David went up the hill to Jerusalem, why did he get so excited? What was he so thrilled about and praised God for. What was it about the city in particular? He doesn't. There are psalms where David uh, talks about different structures of the city, the towers, the walls, you know, the, the defenses and those kind of things. It isn't like he ignored those, but what does he talk about in the psalm? He doesn't really talk about those things hardly at all. What he talks about is worship. When he talks about the tribes, the 12 tribes, the tribes of the Lord going up, He's talking about the people of God gathering. And he's talking about worship when he says, you know, why did they go up? Why, what is the reason he gives in the psalm why the tribes of the Lord went up to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem? Verse 4, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. That's what, he's talking about worship. That's what made Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's what made Jerusalem special and set it apart. In David's day. And notice notice the way he describes worship there. Now there's a lot of other things you could talk about when you talked about the worship in the tabernacle or the temple. He could have talked about the sacrifices. He certainly could have done that. He could have talked about any number of things, but he talked about giving thanks. Thankfulness is to be a hallmark of Christian worship. 
We have a lot to be thankful for to our God and our Savior, especially even during times of affliction, even during times of difficulty and trial. We have much to be thankful for. When the Bible says be thankful in all things, God, God doesn't play games. He doesn't require of us things that we don't have actual reason for. It's because we have reason, abundant reason, to be thankful in all things, no matter what our circumstances may be. We've been blessed, Paul says in Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing if you're in Christ. You may not feel like you do, but you do have every blessing in Christ. We have Christ in you, Paul says, which is the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. You have the Holy Spirit within you, sealing you for the day of redemption as a down payment for your salvation in heaven one day that makes that makes us know we have it. These are all blessings we should rejoice and give thanks for. We, we rejoice, we give thanks because we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who even now lives and reigns at the right hand of God. We serve a, a living Savior who reigns at God's right hand. Revelation 1 5. You know, the first part of the book of Revelation kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book. Revelation 1 5, it calls Jesus the ruler of kings on earth. Also calls him in that book the, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's not some future distant thing. John is telling us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus rules over the kings on earth now. They answer to him now. He judges those who go against him in his time, in this life, and defends his church. He also talks about in the psalm, in verse 5, he talks about their thrones for judgment are set. You know, if there's one thing in recent days that maybe it's, it's grieved you as it's grieved me and many others, it's the lack of justice, the lack of just judgment. We see un, unjust things being done left and right and center. Well, when he thought of the thrones in Jerusalem, he thought of God's just judgments. God's righteous judgment being carried out in all things. That's why he made him rejoice. So thrones for judgment were set there. And I, so I asked this morning, do you love the church? Not just do you look forward to worship, but do you love the church? Despite all of her weaknesses and imperfections in this life, do you love and cherish that which is called the bride of Christ? You know, there, there's an old sort of joke. You know, uh, you know, if you find the perfect church, stay away because you'll mess it up. There is there is no perfect church. If you find it, don't yeah, don't rock the boat. But there is no there is no perfect church in this life. Not this one. Not anyone. If anybody tells you different, you probably need to leave that place. There is no perfect church in this life. But the church of Christ is not to be neglected. We should love it despite all of her imperfections and weaknesses in this life. The church of God, Paul tells Timothy, is the household of God, the family of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The most humble, true church of God is the church of the living God. It doesn't get any more important or better than that. Not only that, but Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He purchased his church with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. There is a desperate need in our day, I think, uh, for what I would call, and some have called in past days, good churchmen. You know, in, in decades and centuries past, that was that was kind of almost a, a definition of a Christian man was a, was he was a good churchman. The church wasn't at the periphery of his of their life. 
The church was in the center in a lot of ways. You you don't have to be as busy in the church as what Rob described every single day of the week, something going on. I wouldn't want to wear anybody out that much. Uh, but the church should be something in the center of your life because it's where God is at work, saving sinners and sanctifying his saints. And what, is, what does David say in verse 6? He says, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It even says there, I'm going to read the King James way of putting part of verse 6 there. It says, they shall prosper that love thee. Kind of sounds like that Arthur Pink thing. God, God blesses and rewards obedience. He doesn't save you by your obedience, but he very often blesses our far from perfect obedience. And those who love his church, what does he say? They shall prosper that love thee. He prayed for the peace and prosperity of the church. And David prayed for the peace and prosperity of those who loved the church in his day. Notice three times he prays for peace in our psalm in verses 6 through 8. He prayed for the peace of God's people, both for the city of God as well as those within her walls. He says, verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake. He didn't just pray for It wasn't just the place. It was the people in the place, the people of God. And so I'll ask this morning, I'm asking a lot of questions of you to apply to yourself, but do you pray for the church? Not just this church, pray for the church everywhere. You pray for the persecuted church in places like Nigeria and China and North Korea and Iran, places like that. Do you pray for the church? Do you pray for her peace and prosperity the way that David does for Jerusalem here in our text? And when we say prosperity, that's a loaded word, right? We don't mean just earthly, material prosperity. That's that's what the worldly people would, would look at and, and seek after. But true prosperity, spiritual prosperity, isn't, isn't always anything about material at all. You could be the, the poorest, most run-down, beat-up church in the middle of the plains somewhere with nothing, you know, nothing to its name, but they have the Lord. They are rich in, in the Lord. That's what we should be praying for. Two Sundays ago... We sang a hymn called, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. I was very tempted to have us sing it again today. I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. The hymn writer, Timothy Dwight, I think, I'm not saying he based his hymn on this psalm, but he must have known something of the heartbeat of David towards the Old Testament church when he wrote that hymn. And we sang this a couple Sundays ago, verses 2 to 3 says this. I won't sing it. It says, I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, Dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand, for her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. God's kingdom and the church are so much overlapped in this life that uh, Timothy Dwight, just like King David, saw it and wrote about it and had us sing about it. In the words of Hebrews 12.14, a familiar verse, he says, We are to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a picture of the peace and prosperity of, of the church. You might remember if you were here last Sunday, our son Benjamin became a communicant member of our church, which was a happy and proud day for us as a family as well as for our church and for Ben. Uh, and when he came up front here, he took membership vows, five membership vows from the Book of Church Order. And if you're a member of this church, you may it may have been a long time ago, but you took these same vows that Ben took uh, up front. And the fifth one of those goes as follows, the last one of those five membership vows. It says, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church 
And then it says, and promise to study its purity and peace. Now that's a strange way of phrasing something. We don't really talk that way commonly these days. But what does it mean to study its purity and peace? It means to make every effort toward it. To think about it, to make it your priority, to make it your goal, to make it something that uh, guides and, and sometimes restricts your behavior and words and things that we do in the church. That we ask ourselves, is this going, if I do or say this, is this going to promote peace and purity in the church or division and schisms and ungodliness? That's what we, that's what we vow to do when we join the church to pray for the peace and purity and study for the peace and purity of the church. That's, you know, we should do, make every effort, every sincere effort in all things to do whatever we can to be of benefit to those in the church, the spiritual well-being and prosperity of our brothers and sisters. To use the words of the hymn I just quoted, that means our tears, prayers, cares, and toils go towards the peace and purity of God's church. Now, if we have truly known the love of Jesus Christ, one of the evidences of that love, one of the results of that love, will be a love for God's people in the church. 1 John three fourteen to 15 the Apostle John says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Love for the brethren, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church is one of the chief evidences of of God's saving grace in a person's life. And how can someone truly say they love their brothers if they avoid church like the plague? It's a bad sign. Not talking about those who can't make it or when something comes up now and again. If we... You know, if we're the opposite of what David says in verse 1, you know, David gets invited to church, so to speak, and he says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. If our attitude is, eh, you know, oh, let me check my calendar, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a bad sign that we don't love the brethren. If we don't love the brethren, how do we know we even love and know Christ? If we know Christ's love, we will love those who are his body, our brothers in Christ. Well, one last lesson for us, I think, is implied in this psalm, and that's we must learn to cultivate a longing for heaven. We should look forward to worship, we should love the church, and we should cultivate a longing for heaven. I think that's one of the aims and results of spirit-filled worship in the church. Public worship, we often say, in some small way, it's kind of like practice for heaven. Not just choir practice, but practice for heaven. It may not always feel like it, but it, it It's to be a foretaste in some small way of heaven, of that new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 21. You know, think about the Lord's Supper that we're going to partake of here shortly. Now, if we're honest, you know, when I uncover these trays and you see the little pieces of bread and little teeny weeny cups of of grape juice and wine, um, does it look in any way outwardly impressive? I know it's a nice shiny tray and, and has a little cross on the top. and There's nothing impressive about it at all. If, if your unsaved friends that didn't know the Bible from the phone book, if they came with you to church someday and we had the Lord's Supper, they would not be sitting there with their jaws gaping open. Wow, look at that. 
little piece of bread in the cup. I get to have that all by my, you know. No. Are you going to finish all that? You know, the, no, nobody looks at a little cup of wine, right, and says, wow, I don't know if I can. You know, it, it's not impressive. There's nothing outwardly about it. In fact, to an unbeliever who doesn't know anything about the Scriptures or the Lord's Supper, it probably looks kind of silly. Like, you guys make a big deal. Your pastor makes these big warnings about eating a piece of bread the size of my thumbnail. What, why would God judge me for eating a piece of bread if I don't know the Lord? Like, But there's more than meets the eye here. It's not outwardly impressive in any way. But to the eye of faith, what are you doing when you partake of this simple piece of bread and that cup of wine or juice? You're partaking by faith and by the work of the Spirit. You're partaking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not physically, not corporally, as the, the, the standards say, but you're by faith and by the work of the Spirit partaking of Christ's body and blood being nourished to your growth in grace. And not only that, this is, where we, this is why we call it communion, you're communing with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and with all the saints with him. Even the public worship of the gathered church, as unimpressive as it often looks, you know, I think that's one of the problems in the church today is we try as hard as we can, too hard. You know people that try too hard? We try too hard to make it look impressive. And what are people impressed by? Rock concerts and TED Talks? I don't know. But that's what we try to do. We try to make it look, jazz it up and make it look impressive. It's not. It's never going to look impressive in this life. But one day in heaven, it's going to look impressive. You and I will be in awe in heaven one day when we're with the Lord in heaven, in, in, in the new Jerusalem, the one that comes down from heaven in the new heavens and the new earth. Public worship in the church is a foretaste of heaven to the moment of the eye of faith. We need to cultivate that eye of faith. We need to cultivate a longing for heaven. We need to say, I get to have this meal, this covenant meal with the Lord and with God's people, but one day there's going to be the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we're going to see it for what it really is and be with the Lord in heaven on that day. We must understand also that David, you know, when he writes the Psalms, very often I think we're tempted to think, well, David didn't really know anything. He just saw the outward things and wrote about those. David was a prophet, Acts 2.30. The Apostle Peter mentions David was a prophet and knew a lot more than you think he knew. He was not blind to the reality of the earthly Jerusalem, even in all of its glory in his day, was a type and shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem which was to come. The very end of our Bibles, uh, almost the very last chapter of our Bible, Revelation 21, talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, it says this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And here it is. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. When David talks about the glories of Jerusalem in Psalm 122 and how he couldn't wait to get there, that's what he was looking to. It wasn't the buildings. It wasn't the temple. All those pointed forward to Christ, and all those things pointed forward to that. 
Revelation 21. Remember what we said at the beginning of, of this morning's sermon. Everything that David says about the earthly Jerusalem and the house of God in this song speaks of the church in this life and public worship and ultimately of the new Jerusalem that God, where God will dwell with us with his people and be our God and we will be his people. And remember, new Jerusalem, it's a place, but it's a people. It's not just a place. It's the place where God dwells with his people and they will be his people and he will be their God. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what makes heaven so something to look forward to and long for is that we'll, we'll see Christ and be made like him. We'll be with God and dwell with him forever. May God work in us what is pleasing in his sight that you and I might look forward more and more to public worship together, that we might more and more by his spirit have a sincere love for his church. And because of that, we might grow and have a longing, more and more of a longing for heaven. Amen. Let's, let's pray.